3: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
1: Oh, press tour, press tour, press tour, and then occasionally on the side, a little bit more press tour, and then sometimes we have to leave press tour to listen to a peacock investment thingamabob. So, yay!
3: Yeah, it's been a real slow news week, uh, in case you haven't been following along on Twitter.
1: That was Leslie being sarcastic.
3: Yeah, I mean, Comcast pulled back the curtain on Peacock, and this is one by far one of the busiest press tours in ages, and Netflix is still putting out news, and then, you know, our pal Greg Berlanti it has had a big week, too. So. He has
1: several shows currently on TV.
3: Yeah, well, before we get into TCA and all of the ongoings from there, let's take a look at some of the big headlines from outside press tour. What do you say, Dan?
1: Sure. Is there a world outside press tour, though?
3: <laughs> I think so. I think starting off, there were Oscar nominations.
1: Wait, is that in our purview or... It's not, but oh, come okay. on, the
3: show airs on TV, Dan. We've talked about it before.
1: Fine, that is true. And we already discussed last week that they are going hostless once again. And of course, there were the usual wide assortment of snubs. And fortunately, many of the people involved have been coming through press tours. So we got to ask Aquafina how she felt about the the conspicuous snubbing of uh, both The Farewell as a movie, its director, its writer, her, her supporting actor colleagues, etc. So she was fairly... I don't know, philosophical. I guess the way that they probably look at it is that it was a little movie at Sundance and they were surprised it got the attention it did. So who needs Oscar attention? But The Farewell deserved attention, darn it.
3: Yeah, and um, uh, over on the casting front, uh, there was a big shocker in the world of Grey's Anatomy, which at least to me is still important. (laughs) Justin Chambers, one of the, the last four original series regulars from season one and the pilot, leaving. And he's already filmed his last episode. And it was very... Just unceremonious. The whole thing fe- makes absolutely no sense. He- he's spent 15 seasons plus and obviously done the first half of season 16. It's a very long run with no statements from Shonda. Largely, most of the cast have been really quiet. It's very odd.
1: And I would assume that eventually there will be a truth that will come out about things. But I assume you're nowhere near being able to speculate.
3: I am not able to speculate. I have made some calls and I I will say no one is talking within the world of Sean
1: So, uh, Well, I mean, it's pretty remarkable, honestly, that a show that is in its 16th season still had four people who have been on since the very beginning. So that's Chandra Wilson, James Pickens and Meredith Grey.
3: Yes, Ellen Pompeo. I
1: understand that she does, in fact, have a real name. It's just sort of blanked on it. I was amazed I was able to come up with the other
3: two. Yeah, me too, actually. And I think you got a little, I think we both have a little press tour brain going on. So, in other casting news, Mark Paul Gossler will return for three episodes of Peacock's Saved by the Bell Revival. And we will have, of course, much more on Peacock coming up after headlines.
1: Oh, so much more.
3: In other castings at Amazon, Richard Madden and Priyanka Chopra Jones will star in the Russo Brothers global event series, which now has a title. It's called Citadel. Over at stars, Method Man has joined Mary J. Blige in the in the Cable Network's Power spinoff.
1: M-E-T-H-O-D Man. M-E-T-H-O-D Man. Oh, sorry. Whatever. I'm Again, I sang last week. I'm singing this week. Listen,
3: or... if you're going to sing every week, I'm just going to stop talking because I'm here for all of it, Dan.
1: <laughs> In any case, Method Man joining power. Um, anyway, so yes, uh, let's see. I like reading This Week in Greg Berlanti news. Uh, so In this part we- one. So.
3: Part so, one of This Week in Greg Berlanti news. It is news. a
1: busy week for Greg Berlanti, as opposed to all of those really quiet weeks for Greg Berlanti. <laughs> Netflix has renewed his Penn Badgley stalker drama, You, for a third season. So get ready to stay in love with that crazy, crazy man.
3: Elsewhere at Netflix, Big Bang Theory co-creator Bill Prady has signed an overall deal with the streamer prady had been without an overall deal for some time now, but it's a good get for them. It's a veteran showrunner. He's going to create new projects a lot, a lot in the the world of sci-fi, and he'll groom up-and-coming writers. and He's had quite a career.
1: And in showrunner exits, Lizzie McGuire creator Terry Minsky has departed the Disney Plus update after the streamer filmed two episodes and decided to go in, quote, a different creative direction and put a new lens on the show. So that's very upsetting news for most of your Generation Z and millennial colleagues. Additionally, Amazon's Jack Ryan is bringing in its third showrunner ahead of season three with Vaughn Wilmot replacing Paul Schering.
3: No drama there. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five.
1: Number one.
3: Leading off and before we get into TCA headlines, Peacock formally pulled back the curtain on its launch plans with a two hour presentation to investors. These presentations, they're becoming so frequent. We had Disney and Apple TV Plus and HBO Max and. You know, Peacock is the latest one, and then whatever Quibi is eventually going to probably do. What did you think of of, uh, the Peacock presentation? And we can get into some of the actual facts afterwards, but seeing as how it ended about 20 minutes ago.
1: Yeah, no, definitely becoming accustomed to the rhythms of these presentations, which are a little bit like circadian rhythms because they put you to sleep very, very quickly. Um, Yeah, definitely... It is worth noting that these presentations are, of course, for investors and people of that ilk and not really and truly for people of our ilk. So it's not supposed to entertain us when they talk about concepts like ARPU. I don't know what ARPU stands for, but I love saying ARPU. Uh, but yeah, you know, they've basically they've they found their various Themes and they repeated them ad nauseum. And so the key theme that they wanted to go with is uh, is free. And so free. And that was what I was able to take away from that is that this is going to be free, except I'm probably going to end up paying for it.
3: Yeah. Basically, if you are a Comcast subscriber, the service is free. It will have ads on it for free. And they made a big point of saying that episodes will be have a grand total of five minutes of advertising per, per hour. Per hour. Which is interesting, and if you're a Comcast subscriber and you don't want the five minutes of ads per hour, you can pay five dollars for an ad-free service.
1: That is on top, though, of the five dollars that you would be paying for the premium version of the service. So to but get that's the...
3: if you're yeah this it's it's yeah it's a little confusing.
1: It's five dollars additional for the premium service, and then five dollars additional for ad-free. So it's ten dollars if you want premium and ad-free. I don't want to say it's wholly... Confusing, because that would be HBO Max. I still don't have a clue what's happening with that at all.
3: I disagree. I think <laughs> Peacock is more confusing, because, and it's because of this tiered pricing structure that whatever you're going to play, if you're going to pay premium or you're going to have the, the low end, whatever, they're just, this just plain old Peacock, they're going to put different types of programming in every bucket. So if you want, I would presume, a high-profile show like Battlestar Galactica, or Doctor Death, which got the strongest applause in the room, I would imagine those are going to be in the top tier. So you'll have to pay to get
1: those. Oh, so it's, it's basically
3: a premium streaming service.
1: It, I'm not sure that's how I read what they were saying. I, but I could be wrong. I, I don't imagine because they want. It sounded like they really want people to emphasize the freeness, so that you can actually watch ads. But I, I would be surprised if you had to pay five dollars to get the top tier things. But it was hard to tell from the way they were putting it. They yeah. A lot of the things that are of most use to consumers were not things they wanted to discuss. Like they didn't want to talk about what the rollout plan is involving original scripted programming. That was just not a thing they wanted to directly get into. But we do have launch dates. So yes. what were the launch dates?
3: If you're a Comcast subscriber, it launches April 15th. If you're not a Comcast subscriber, it launches around the Olympics, July 15th, nationally. So this is a domestic-only service to start, similar to many of the other streamers and how they launch too. And what we also learned as part of the presentation is they're going to get a huge chunk of the Dick Wolf Library. So they're going to get the entirety of Law & Order SVU, that's 21 seasons and counting, select episodes from the flagship series Law & Order, select episodes from Criminal Intent, And all three Chicago shows—so Chicago PD, Chicago Med, and Chicago Fire—sources say that the deal is worth between 300 million and 400 million. So we're going to just start a new segment that's called "They Make How Much." As part of the Dick Wolf deal, these shows will be non-exclusive to start. Hulu, for example, continues to stream Law and Order SVU has and has the full library there. And they quiet, quietly renewed that deal. I believe one of the Peacock execs mentioned that a lot of these deals will be up in two years. So the goal will probably be to eventually have everything on their service exclusively. So
1: yeah, it definitely does them no good to have lots of the things you want already existing on Hulu. Uh but that's how these things go. A lot of the things I thought were most interesting were the things they emphasized in terms of sports because they're launching the side of the Olympics because they really, really want people to watch Olympics programming through Peacock. They promised such things as exclusive events, live events, events earlier, documentaries, etc. Then they also mentioned lots of premiership soccer games and other things like that. So, you know, they were trying to hook you in various and sundry ways. Uh, I think perhaps the most interesting thing that they talked about was what they're going to be doing with their two late-night programs. I thought that was kind of fascinating, actually.
3: Yes, both uh, Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers' shows will be available on Peacock hours before they premiere on NBC for the first time.
1: Yeah, at 8 8 p.m. Eastern time, so if you wish to watch late-night, in primetime.
3: Before primetime. That's five o'clock our time. It Pacific. is five
1: o'clock our time. Um, so, you know, it's your best chance to watch a late night show in primetime since the quality days of the Jay Leno show. So, uh, Good times, NBC. Good times.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, look, they have had a slew of other straight to series announcements. They had there's one a comedy from Tina Fey. They picked up Punky Brewster series. They uh, rolled out a, um, a really interesting looking six show development slate with with projects from Amy Poehler and Norman Lear and Mindy Kaling. Plus, they're developing a MacGruber comedy with Will Forte. There's a lot that they're doing. Um, one thing that I thought was odd as part of this presentation was something that they didn't mention, and that is, and filed this under they make how much, is Seth MacFarlane. He just signed on Friday. He closed what sources say is a $200 million overall deal with NBC Universal. Taking him out of his longtime home at 20th Century Fox Television, he's going to create and develop new projects for Peacock and other cable networks as part of the NBC fold. Sources say he's particularly interested in developing for sci-fi, which is like, I mean, that's cool for sci-fi because they definitely need something flashy. But yeah, that's a huge deal for them. I mean, he's created a multi-billion dollar franchise. And he had no part in the Peacock presentation.
1: I guess if he didn't have something specifically that they wanted to use as the tip of the Seth McFarlane iceberg to announce, that makes sense because it's not like they're getting his library. So, you know, they're no. getting they're getting the future concept of Seth McFarlane much more than they're getting things that he actually is associated with with people. I mean, they're get, they're getting the Seth McFarlane of the Orville. So, yay. <laughs>
3: Right. And he's and he'll act in other things. He'll develop things. And what's interesting about this deal, too, is unlike the Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy Netflix deals, they'll still sell to third party outlets. So that means if Seth has a show that he comes up with and he says, you know what, this one feels like it should be on Hulu, NBCU will sell it to Hulu. And they'll sell it to, to, to competitors. So it, it, it truly is the best of both, both worlds. And he'll continue to maintain his current shows. So TBS comedy, animated comedy American Dad just got renewed for two seasons this tour. The Orville, which is coming up for season three on Hulu, it's first there after two on Fox. He'll continue on, on that one. And of course, Family Guy is in the first of its two season renewal at the broadcast network at, over at Fox. So,
1: uh, But with it, the Cleveland show.
3: Yeah, well, that I think wraps up uh, our, our Peacock segment. It's a lot to get through and obviously still developing many more stories to come as people find uh, find different angles on this one. But my big takeaway is that they're not trying to compete with the likes of an HBO Max or a Netflix, but instead Hulu and even YouTube.
1: Definitely that is who it sounds like they're competing against. It's still a little perplexing to me, but ultimately these things are all just going to come this spring, and we're going to sit in a corner and cry.
3: <laughs> that takes us to our second topic this week, Dan. It's almost time for us to see daylight again. TCA is in the final stretch, and there has been a lot of news.
1: Number two.
3: I'm going to say that again. There is a lot of news. It feels like those two weeks around the holidays where nothing happened. This is like penance for not working those two
1: weeks. I worked a lot of those two weeks.
3: I didn't. There was no news. Nothing was happening. But now it's all happening. I've never seen anything like this. This is like, it's truly peak breaking news.
1: Well, let's get to some of it. Uh, Up first at Amazon, Amazon, among other things, picked up Jack Reacher to series. I asked them about whether they were going to make a commitment to actually casting someone 6 foot 5 and between 210 and 250 pounds to play Jack Reacher as opposed to Tom Cruise and Jen Salkey said that they were going to put in a lot of effort to looking and that they knew that there were big shoes to fill, but she didn't exactly say that they were going to do it. According to my Twitter feed, uh, popular contenders to play Jack Reacher include uh, Holt McElhaney, who, um, who is now available after apparently Netflix is not moving forward with the third season of Manhunter as of now.
3: Not technically true. Um, <laughs> so they do want to make a third season. David Fincher is busy doing another project for Netflix, and they didn't want to hold the cast to their deals, which would have been troublesome for them to book other things during this, this kind of iffy period. But everyone involved wants to do a third season. It's just You know, this is a a case where you have a producer who steers the creative on this that can't and doesn't want to juggle multiple things. So imagine if Greg Berlanti said, I'm only going to do this Green Lantern show and I don't want to do anything else right now because this show is so important to me. That's what's happening here. So it's not that Mindhunter is canceled. It's just kind of it's in limbo like a lot of other shows.
1: I appreciate the clarification and surely the listeners do. And mostly he still is available to do this because it's not coming anytime soon. But then again, people also suggested such contenders as Army Hammer and Cousin Greg from Succession, which probably not going to happen. Still at Amazon, they set overall deals with Brad Pitt, Steve McQueen and uh, Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna. And they announced the Lord of the Rings cast, headed by a bunch of people you probably have not heard of. But all of their names are in our story over at THR.com. Speaking of streamers, over at Warner Media,
3: they had their first very, very full day across the company with presentations from HBO Max executives. They had TNT and TBS, and there was a lot going on. So Steven Soderbergh signed an overall deal with HBO and HBO Max. Adam McKay set, has a scripted anthology focusing on climate change that uh, Kevin Riley compared to Black Mirror. Over at TBS, um, we already talked about Seth MacFarlane's American Dad getting picked up for two more seasons. That takes us through its its 18th season in 2022 and 300 episodes. Goodness gracious! Yeah, and we'll have more on Seth's busy January shortly. Over at TNT, sound the train, Dan. Snowpiercer has a premiere date, May 31st.
1: Why is that significant?
3: That's significant because it's been in the works for five years, two showrunners, two pilot directors, two networks, and it's renewed for season two. So, you know, we asked the showrunner, Graham Manson, about the delays at uh, the top of his TCA panel. You know, there was a little spin in that, but uh, I'm happy to report that we did sit down with him for an upcoming showrunner spotlight, and he was very good.
1: And that'll be available on this podcast in, say, five months? In May.
3: It's coming in May. So
1: try to get your enthusiasm up. It's coming in May, assuming that the show sticks to a May 31st premiere date, which totally we believe it will, because, you know, why would they lie?
3: Yeah, and it'll definitely premiere on TNT. They still have, what, four, you know, four or five months to decide that it's actually better for HBO Max. But uh, I digress. One other big takeaway from Kevin Riley's Time Before Press, you know, I asked him about the status of the Friends reunion special. Still a maybe. They they all want it to happen. Obviously, we talked about, you know, that this is nothing is set in stone and it's going to rely on everyone's schedules. But yeah, it's still being worked out. And then also be, still being worked out is the fate of Audience Network and DC Universe.
1: Too. And, and Cinemax.
3: And Cinemax. Doesn't look good for all, any of them. Obviously, we know that, you know, they pulled the plug on Audience Network. Riley said they're still considering if those originals are going to move to Max. DC Universe already has at least one original that's moving to Max. That's Doom Patrol, and it's going to have a dual window on Max and DCU.
1: And with Cinemax, what they said was that they're basically playing out the string on the shows that they already have and have already been ordered, which to the best of my knowledge, mostly means Warrior. And Jet. Uh, Jet is sort of in limbo. I don't think it's been officially canceled or anything else. So it's out there and it sounds as if there will be no future new Cinemax originals, which means Cinemax is just going to sit there showing movies, which, you know, it worked out well for a number of years, so. So it goes.
3: Well, let's move on to the Viacom CBS-owned networks. And it was a parade of networks coming through here under that umbrella, Dan.
1: It was indeed. So over at Showtime, Shameless has been picked up for the 11th and, the important part, final season at Showtime, which is also returning Work in Progress and the L-Word Generation Q for season two.
3: As someone who is still very much enjoying Shameless, it's time. It's been time. It, it, this season could have very easily been, you know, the, the following the family of and how they adapt to, to losing Emmy Rossum. You could have ended it here. This season's not been particularly great, but I'm not a critic. I'm only a fan. So.
1: <laughs> Over at CBS All Access, Star Trek Picard has been renewed for a second season with work on season three already underway. Stay tuned to the podcast really just next week when we have a fun sit down with Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Shabon.
3: We've done a lot, Dan, lots of showrunner interviews. There's a lot of breaking news, tons of panels. It's been a really busy tour beyond the the headlines. So speaking of CBS and one of the bigger headlines out of the network, which didn't have an executive session, Alex Kurtzman, who obviously is producing Picard, is teaming with CBS to develop Clarice, a Silence of the Lambs TV sequel written by, yep, Alex Kurtzman.
1: Written by, nope, not Brian Fuller, and therefore not associated with Hannibal, and therefore my interest is let's just say tempered, but I could suddenly become really excited by that if they cast it really well. So who knows?
3: Yeah. And in one of the bigger announcements out of TCA, Comedy Central has locked up Daniel Tosh and his Tosh.0 for four more seasons. Sweet
1: zombie Jesus.
3: Four more seasons. A four season renewal. I I can't remember the last time I saw, saw a four season renewal.
1: I mean, that makes the three season renewal of New Amsterdam look positively one season fewer.
3: I mean, that's been honestly been one of the bigger headlines. This tour is all of these multiple season renewals. American Dad, we talked about. Tosh.0, New Amsterdam, American Horror Story got three more years at FX. But to me, you know, this this one seems like a no brainer because this is not an expensive show to produce. And that's me not knowing how much Daniel Tosh makes. But and, you know, and his 25 million or so followers. So. I don't know. That guy's pretty big, apparently. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and, and included in this deal, he also has an overall deal. He's going to do other projects and possibly host another show for them. But it's a low-cost programming. There's a threat of a potential writer's strike that's kind of looming that could impact a lot of programming when the current deal expires April 30th. So renewing an unscripted show that is quick and easy, like a viral video show to produce, makes a lot of sense. Elsewhere at Comedy Central, they also renewed Aquafina's is Nora from Queens for a second season before its premiere.
1: And we may talk at least briefly about that in a couple minutes uh, down the road after other things. Moving along quickly, and we really probably should get quick because this segment's getting pretty long. And as we told you, there's a lot of news here. It's a lot of news. Over at Paramount Network, which we swear is a thing, Yellowstone creator Taylor Sheridan has now a second show. The first one obviously being... Yellowstone, as I just said, a prison drama called Mirror of Kingston. And in breaking news, Facebook has
3: canceled Sorry for Your Loss and Limetown. The former will be shopped to other outlets, but uh, this is the social media network retreating from scripted.
1: That was not a long time in scripted that they spent, and it's too bad because Sorry for Your Loss is a really good show, and honestly, if someone else wanted to pick it up, they could pretty much market it as a brand new show, and no one would know the difference. You should totally listen to our rather fantastic interview with uh, showrunner creator Kit Steinkellner. That would be the October 4th episode of our podcast. It's a great interview. And also in breaking news, confirming what was largely anticipated or guessed or assumed. Or
3: leaked by Giancarlo Esposito.
1: All of those things. AMC has confirmed that the sixth season, newly renewed, of Better Call Saul will be its last season. The fifth season will premiere on February 23rd and February 24th. The sixth season, which will be 13 episodes, will premiere sometime in 2021 we'll see if that happens this is a show where the people involved like to get things right and i'm glad that they're gonna have the chance to bring the show into whatever conclusion they want on their own terms
3: yeah and vince and peter the uh, sh- co-creators and showrunners said that they're grateful that amc um, and sony are allowing them to end the story the way and when they wanted to um and i think that's important to note uh, because you know we're still i think feeling the hit of lodge 49
1: Indeed. And you can tune in in about a month for our sit down with Vince and Peter. And a quick wrap up of what happened last weekend at NBC, which now seems like a thousand years ago. I mean, surely by now you already know that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are returning to host the 2021 Golden Globes. That's looking far ahead. It's
3: easily the best news out of TCA, Dan.
1: It's certainly a fun piece of news. Uh, surely you probably also know that they are doing a semi-autobiographical Dwayne Johnson comedy called Young Rock. I still think it should be called The Pebble, but whatever. And we've already mentioned that New Amsterdam has renewed, been renewed for three more seasons. And for heaven's sakes, ugh, Siffy has ordered, and that would be Sci-Fi, <laughs> Siffy, (laughs) has ordered a Chucky TV show straight to series because when the premise of your show is a doll kills people, why do you need a pilot to prove that that's a workable premise?
3: (laughs) And speaking of broadcast networks, let's take us to our third topic.
1: Number three.
3: Up next, CW. Again, the only broadcast network that wasn't at TCA, and yet they still managed to have a really busy week. And that's after That's a week after it renewed all thirteen, almost all of its entire slate, 13 shows. So what's interesting here? Well, Mark Pedowitz, the exec who runs the network, signed a new deal to remain at the helm and has been promoted to chairman and CEO. So why does that matter? Because he's doing much more than just making programming decisions. He is the the executive responsible for the network having in-season stacking rights. What the hell is in-season stacking rights? It means you can go watch a show like Batwoman, on the CW's app, cwtv.com, and other platforms while it's still airing. This is what everyone during Jane the Virgin wanted because people would talk about the show when it was already, you know, six, seven, eight episodes into the season, but no one could go back and watch those early episodes and, and come in And join the show in real time. So that's a huge move for the CW.
1: I wonder if this will now make Mark Pedowitz too big to come do an executive sessions at TCA's and if he will start sending a convenient underling now that he no longer has to report on what the future of Supernatural is.
3: I mean, what are we going to ask him if we can't ask him how much longer Supernatural will run? And if he can say as long as the guys will want to do it.
1: Ah, apparently they no longer wanted to do it.
3: Well, speaking of Supernatural, Jared Padalecki will be back on the network next season because the CW handed out a straight-to-series order for Walker, Texas Ranger. That's a sizable, sizable and rare move. Also picked up to to series, and this is, you can consider this part two of this week in Greg Berlanti News. It's a straight-to-series order for Arrowverse spinoff Superman and Lois. Dan, this is the very first time that the CW has ever done a straight-to-series order in the network's history. And I double-checked that with, <laughs> with the network to confirm. It's it's fascinating.
1: Well, okay, so why, why these shows? Why at this time? What does that say about the version of the broadcast television game that the CW is playing?
3: Well, it's not so much the version of the game that they're playing. It's more, at least my theory on it, is guarding against and trying to protect against a potential strike. So... Look, the network usually sticks to the traditional development season. That means picking up a script, which people did the end of, you know, halfway through uh, last summer and into the fall. And now those network execs review the scripts and then they make decisions based on them and then hand out a pilot order. And that's when this time of year, all the networks start picking up everything. So that means they got to start finding directors and casting it and production people and it's it's a competitive time, but what's interesting about a straight-to-series order is that the early orders allow them to find the cast, and when they do start production on a pilot, usually in May or in March, what typically happens at other networks is they'll produce this stuff in, in kind of January, February, March, wh- shut down, and then in May, stuff gets picked up to series and then it goes back into production in June. What the CW is going to do is they're going to fill all these roles and, and, and all the behind-the-scenes people. And then when they start production, they're just going to go. And beyond even doing that, it also affords the writers, they can open an entire writer's room now in January, start banging out scripts. And then, God forbid, a writer strike happen at the end of April, they've already got a number of scripts and they will have production already underway and things ready to go so that if they could possibly bang out an an entire season of scripts. So getting an early jump and, and going straight to series is interesting. And we're starting to see some of these other networks doing it, too. So you mentioned, you know, the Pebble, Young Rock, same thing, straight to series. I don't know when that begins production, but it's if they're smart, it happens soon.
1: Well, it's too bad that the CW did not come to press tour because apparently they had a lot of news they wanted to announce and would have been nice to, at the very least, have, you know, 30 minutes with Mark Pedowitz explaining the state of the CW. But perhaps we will get another chance. And I think that's about enough time dedicated to news this week. Let's get to our next segment. Number four.
3: Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guests this week are our second writing team, but our first husband and wife partnership. Robert and Michelle King are the creative forces behind The Good Wife and its acclaimed CBS All Access spinoff The Good Fight. Their current network show Evil on CBS is one of the most acclaimed broadcast dramas in years. Next up, they're working on Showtime's Brian Cranston limited series Your Honor, giving them shows on broadcast, cable and streaming. Our guests this week are Robert and Michelle King. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Our greatest pleasure.
1: So, We're heading towards the end of the first season of Evil, and the show has been on this run of rather nightmarish, intense, hallucinogenic episodes, which are not usually adjectives that I attribute to shows on CBS. I'm curious, from the beginning, did they know where you were going with this, and what were the conversations you've had along the way letting them know, okay, what started off as a procedural, we're going elsewhere?
2: Michelle, that's... (laughs) I mean, I think they knew we were going to delve into some strange territories. They may not have thought it was going to go as deep as they did. I mean, the ones we always compare it to were shows on network like Hannibal. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, the warning was there. It was truth in advertising.
0: I would say it's structurally more peculiar than they may have known or that we knew when we started. But at no point have they balked. I mean, no one has said, oh, can you get a little more
1: average? (laughs) Never at all. Well, it's funny you mentioned Hannibal, and obviously that's a great comparison. But that's a great comparison that will make TV critics, creatives, and probably about 10,000 people out there happy. (laughs) But it's not the kind of comparison that a network is immediately (laughs) going to say, oh, yeah, let's do that. So (laughs) obviously you did not pitch it as that, right? (laughs) We did not pitch it as that.
0: But we pitched it as what it is. I mean, that there were these two characters and that they would have different points of view and that we would be looking at these unexplained things that the Catholic Church would be sending them out to and they knew what they were getting into.
2: I think that what they thought, and it's true, but probably is, it is warmer. Because A, there's a, obviously a good wife element to it. And in that it's a Juliana Margulies kind of character who has children who's trying to balance work life and home life. You know, there are all those elements. We hope we do them differently. But I think those are the things that maybe keeps it in the realm of something sympathetic.
3: Staying on the evil track for a second, you know,
2: this is a short
3: order series. And, you know, when CBS later last year announced that it was picking up all of its shows for additional episodes, you guys got a season two order. This is always going to be a short order series. And is that kind of how you are approaching broadcast at this point in your careers? Yes.
0: Unequivocally, we did not want to be doing 22 anymore. So- we did
2: on on Good Wife. We did uh, 22, and then the first two years we did 23. And I think the bottom line is, I think Damon Lindelof said it when he looked back at he never understands now how we did it. I think we're the same way. We it, it's unclear, although pff, we're doing 23 episodes this year if you if consider you, a Good if Fight you and add the two shows. Good, but luckily, we're not good on math. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so but. To answer your question, yeah, we are very definitive that it's going to be We pitched
2: with CBS saying, you know, we'd only do it if we could get 15 or fewer. Well, it's funny because we've
1: talked about the serialized elements, but it is a show that at least in the middle part of the series did have A lot of standalone procedural episodes, and I think you guys do those really well. And I'm curious where your hearts kind of lie in the serialized versus procedural storytelling.
2: We're probably people who tend to run in the other direction of where everybody else is at it for good and bad. In this case, everybody's heading towards streaming this idea that I'm doing an eight-hour movie. And every time I hear that, I just want to fall asleep because... I don't want to go to eight-hour movies. I don't want to because <laughs> I know there'll be two or three peaks episodes that I'll put aside and go, "Oh my God, that's the best thing I've seen." But there's just when eight-hour movies are two to three hours for a reason, um, and so I guess we're people who the pretentious way to put it is there are some lovely Milan Kundera books, the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which are a series of short stories that add up to be a novel but they're short stories and you could take them individually. And I do think that's a more exciting way because you're watching something that, you know, have a beginning, middle and end that will be an experience unto itself. And yet when you watch all of them together, there's another experience that there is there too. And that's what evil will be. We're not, we haven't, you haven't seen the last episode yet, but it is meant to be a full experience when you see all of them. And I think, That is a fun challenge to us because we seem to be drawn to it.
0: And what's nice about procedural elements in a show is it allows us and the writers to explore something that's caught our eye in the news or whatever that suddenly you can make an episode about that as opposed to this
3: long overarching story that you've decided on three months prior. I cover development for THR, as I mentioned, and one of the things that I find so interesting about you guys is through your deal with CBS Studios, you, you have the trifecta. You've got a show on broadcast, Evil, streaming with The Good Fight, and, of course, Premium Cable, Showtime coming up with Your Honor. Where are you guys most comfortable? Oh, my God! Does it make a difference Michelle? anymore, the platform, considering the, that everyone is eventually probably going to watch it on streaming at some point or another? <laughs> the only thing that is slightly more comfortable about streaming is is that
0: the episode length is fungible. You know, you're not stuck. But that said, in terms of content, we're pretty comfortable on all the platforms. We don't live and die with nudity or language. What's nice about
3: network is there are more people viewing it still at this stage. Have you been given information about how your shows are performing on on streaming? Like do you know how, what no. like what have you guys been told? It, you know what it, it is always terribly opaque and
0: you all you know is whether they smile at you in the hallway and give you another season.
3: And thus far we've gotten smiles and seasons. Is that kind of refreshing that you don't have to look at the overnight's anymore? It, yeah.
2: Yeah. And I remember going back to the first 2 years of Good Wife, we were never that good for them. <laughs> overnight wise so there was always this the first two years i was always worried that that was it or the first 13 it felt like that was going to be it so you always kind of like and i remember the sick feeling you and now either because we're older or because it doesn't as matter as much because what matters is a bigger picture for these conglomerates
0: it's not the same vocabulary they yeah. they just aren't talking about ratings in the same way at least not to us
1: well, it's also funny, of course, because the ratings that Good Wife was doing in its first couple of years, which were sort of bubbly at the time, obviously would make you one of the most popular shows on broadcast
2: Correct. television. Isn't that
0: shocking? I mean, if, if you look at the numbers of a quote unquote hit now, you wouldn't make it past the first commercial you'd be yanked.
2: But we also have no writers who were in the ER days. And, the, and prior to that, it's all kind of relative to each other. Yeah, I was uh, – we had – stupid
1: anecdote, but we had Alex Trebek here for, uh, for a Jeopardy! panel the other day, and I was glanced because it's the 30th anniversary of the Cheers episode that he was on, and that episode was watched by 37 million people in 1990, so <laughs> different age. I, I feel like there's an anecdotal thing that you can get, though, because I saw a lot on Twitter of people binging evil over the past couple weeks.
2: Can you get any feeling for that, you guys? Uh, we'd have been told they, – they put it on all axes – Evil now on the on the good side of the fire, of the good side of the money wall. What is a paywall. it? The paywall. A paywall. Isn't that terrible? The in, front, side in, of, in front, of, front the of the paywall. They basically They're, made it easy for people to watch it free. Right. Exactly. And I think what we'd heard, it was like, you know, they were melodramatic about how good it went. In a good way, it makes you feel good because, I mean, uh we didn't want to kind of suddenly get on a network just as it was like falling apart and and taking on water. It was like the last lifeboat off the Titanic. And then here we are in it. Uh, So you want, you want it to be accessible. You want shows to be accessible. And on all access on good fight, it always felt like it was such a, like a gated community. I think Emily Newsmom called it. And I think that's, I think sometimes that feels like, well, that's not the spirit of what we're, we're after. The spirit of what we're after is, you know, that everybody gets to see it whenever they want.
3: Yeah. Did Did you want originally the Good Wife spinoff to be on CBS just as the flagship was? No. no. <laughs>
2: uh, only because they came to us and pitched us, you know, here's the thing. When you're working on network, there is one detriment. You're always struggling for money. I mean, when I talk to our friends who are doing streaming, it's like, what? How many days did you get to shoot that? What? That's insane. Yeah, you know, um, have to turn
3: around an episode in like eight days. Yeah, I'm eight like that? nine
2: days. And so, what the pitch was with all axes was more money. So there was an advantage of that. We originally we were not going to run it. We were having somebody else run the good fight, and then we just topped on board once it seemed like it was with Christine Baranski with Kush Jumbo coming on board, and when we hired Delroy, you know, it was all seemed like it came together in a way that we wanted to. And also, the other thing, one of the reasons to be excited about and continue to be excited about it, was because of the change in administration. It felt like suddenly the show had something else to say that Good Wife did not say.
0: And also, being on All Access was a real positive just in terms of no- fewer episodes, which is what we wanted to do.
2: Well, it's funny. You say, you say when you talk
1: to people who do streaming, but now that you guys are on basically three different versions yeah. of television <laughs> at the right. same time, how do you keep from being like... Well, you know, Showtime let us do this or CBSLX, you know, basically going, going to your mother or going to your father and saying, but mom
2: said we could do this. Uh, we do do that, though. We shouldn't say that we do that. But we do do that uh, partly because you're working with a company that works off precedent, not just in contracts, but also in standards. And so... There's you're, Yes, we tend to say, but we got away with this over here. Why can't we get away with that over there? And, you know, it helps that you're aware of several versions of what CBS is. Or, you know, you're aware of the players in different areas of the company. Yeah, that's that's actually the funny thing is that it's not like you're doing
1: one Netflix show, one NBC show, right. and no, one it's, whatever. It's, it's all
3: in the family. <laughs> it's all in the same ecosystem, which is where T V is increasingly going. You know, when you look at a platform yes. like HBO Max that's gonna have a little bit of everything from Warner Media and and now with CBS and re uh, remerging with Viacom, that family just got a hell of a lot bigger.
2: And the worry is, I mean the worry I have is what is I what happens to identity of shows? I mean, what happens to landgraph in that universe? What happens to some people who had very odd particular voices? Uh, you know, I don't know. I read what you guys report on Keith Sutter. But, you know, what? Who? where does Keith Sutter settle when you're talking about companies that are worried about the brand? We've never. What? Kurt Sutter. What did I say? Keith? Kurt Sutter. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, we've never had to deal with that because. Uh, you know what? We had to deal with it with the China stuff. But beyond that. We never had to really deal with that. Uh, Anyway, thank you, Michelle. (laughs) You know, I I, I do want to
3: follow up on on the China stuff. You're, of course, referring to a scene that was censored last season um, by All Access, in which, as I've read, you you did a great piece with Emily Nussbaum, um, that you threatened to quit the show. Can you talk us through a little bit about what you learned from that
2: experience? Well, that's a good way to put it, because we've agreed not to talk too deeply about it. What we've learned— from the experience, is there has to be an element of trust between your collaborators. And I do think by going the extra mile after there was a mistake, that trust was reestablished. Would you agree, Yeah, that's, a, that's a nice way to put it. I, here's the thing. I mean, d- d- we like them. And they, they like us because we're... In, as people, we tend to be inoffensive. <laughs> We're not the people. You're not Kurt Sutter, is <laughs> yeah. what you're saying. We're not yeah. Kurt Sutter or Keith Sutter. We are, <laughs> we are not. Uh, we tend to want to make people laugh and feel good about calling us, not like, what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? And so <laughs> I do think there was a reestablishment of trust after that because we've always been amazed what we've been able to get away with. But that the China thing had gone so far up to the date of broadcast that was such a late reversal; it, it really needed to reestablish. Okay, there's no way Michelle and I could have played that differently, right?
0: Yeah. And you asked, what did we learn? In some ways, not that much, because in terms of process, there wasn't much we could have done differently. We're we're not the folks that try to pull something on the network we're the ones that call ahead of time and say we're considering this area. If you are uncomfortable with it, there's no point in moving forward. Now they never say we're not comfortable with it. But we we get in front of ideas that we know are going to be potentially controversial. So, you know, we've continued to work the way I mean, we it's work. ever
2: since the second season of Good Wife, we start with a kind of Lingus scene between <laughs> yeah, uh between Perita Rico and Alicia, Four. and so there were a lot of calls ahead of time. We're doing this would give us some warnings about how to shoot it, anything, and we'll be, you know, careful. But we're doing it, and this is the reason why it makes sense within the narrative to do it. We're not just doing it like blah blah, you know. We're, we can <laughs> do this, so fuck you, you know. We want to have it have a narrative purpose. Um, so what I, were, what were the notes on that one? Uh, do it in a shot that you have a lot of coverage <laughs> and someone can manipulate. So you know what the director did? No coverage. So there was one shot. <laughs> and so what we did is we some, did some digital manipulation of moving in on the image to be above the waist. Anyway, that was interesting.
0: And then added NPR.
2: Yeah, that was funny. NPR. Yeah. They're listening to All Things Considered. Now, for two
1: people who aren't on Twitter, going back to The Good Wife, you guys have a really, have always had a great sense of how, and this has become basically the text in evil, how evil social media is and how awful it is. I, I'm curious, do you have to go to other people to tell you these things, or is this a situation where you've seen enough to know that it's I, You awful? know,
0: you, <laughs> if you walk down the street, you're aware of what social media is doing as opposed to needing to follow it every moment.
2: I You know, it's interesting because not being in the thick of it for reasons that often seem smart when you see what friends of ours have been involved with, you know, directors who've had kind of toxic fandom kind of come down on them. And when you're not in the middle of it, you actually can explore it a little more and kind of point out some of the things. But I don't know uh, if that, we're not involved with it because we don't really like engaging with it I was going to say, <laughs> it's not
0: even... <laughs> It's not even so much a choice. It's just, okay, that doesn't hold tremendous appeal to me right now. So I'm not, you know, it's the same reason I don't crochet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I do think there are dangers with it. Obviously, the show points out a lot of the dangers of social media that come and bite you in the ass in ways you didn't expect. A judge who friends someone on Facebook and then realizes that person is on his jury and the jury verdict is thrown out because of that connection. You know, there's things that um, the shows try to point out all these ways that social media influences you uh, that you don't expect. But, I mean, social media we use nonstop when it comes down to asking expert opinions. We, we just don't tend to use face- – I don't use Facebook. I don't use Twitter. I don't use anything that my opinions from 10 years ago can be used against me now and get me fired from a job. But at one
1: point, it obviously started off seeming like a good idea to people. Did it never seem like a good idea to you guys ever?
0: I've I've never understood how anyone thought that putting their ideas into 140 characters would work. So, I mean, I started with, okay, that just doesn't make sense to me. And then obviously I was wrong because it took off huge, but I've never gotten past the, but it doesn't make sense to me.
2: I mean, we sound like Luddites, but on every other level, Technology is our best friend. I mean, we use technology in every way. Um, I don't think the show off, I mean, I've never understood why do you want to engage with letters to the editor, which is kind of like if you're writing, then yes, I want the criticisms from people I love, but everybody else, you know, they're going to be mean, they're going to hurt me, you know. So I think we, we veer away from too much of that.
3: Yeah, it's a considerably healthier Oh my God, do we outlook. sound
2: like old folks? No,
1: you sound extremely healthy. <laughs> also, I would say that maybe
2: you would
1: if people didn't watch the show and know that it's pretty much constantly, oh, okay, that's exactly, unfortunately, how things are <laughs> on there. So, you know, you're obviously doing something right, perhaps by avoiding <laughs> getting there at all.
2: <laughs> but also technology goes much further. I mean, the Bitcoin episode, uh, you know, that we have the pride of coming out very early before Bitcoin took off. You know, the... I think a lot of it is if you look for the other ways social media or uh, computers affect us. Uh, I don't know if you look at this uh, Sonos creature, this ball that's about the size of a grapefruit that follows you around your house. I mean, that is just perfect for satire. It, and you see the commercial of it following the dog and picking up after the dog and stuff. It's like, oh my God, that is the next satire we're going to pursue.
3: You know, speaking of other things that you're going to pursue, you have this huge deal with CBS Studios, um, three shows in the works. What's next? I mean, how many more shows do you want to be juggling? I mean, we're in this climate where prolific producers such as yourself that can deliver hits on multiple platforms are in incredibly high demand and being asked to do more, more, more.
2: We're not into more, more, more in general. We have lit, lit, what were you going to say?
0: I was going to say some version of that, which is, for us, it, it isn't about the ideal number. It's just we get intrigued by stories or ideas, and it's like, oh, but that would be really fun to do, and then you get hooked.
2: So uh, Liz Glotzer heads up our production, and she's much more ambitious sometimes than we are, which are like, yeah, but we want our vacation once a year, you know. So there's, uh, I do think there's an upward limit of how many we can actively supervised, which seems to be in the 23 territory. Because then you just run out of ability. You run out of— You mean episodes. Yeah, yeah I, I should clarify I 23, because, 23 episodes yeah. because,
3: you know, there's a guy named Greg Berlanti with 21 scripted yeah. shows currently right. in the works. which but is, I, don't I
0: don't even understand. understand— So you guys may
2: understand that. How Tell does us. he even
0: watch his shows, much less—
3: Make them. I don't understand it. I would love to know. And yeah.
2: at some
1: point, we'll have him yeah. on the podcast, and he'll that's our explain first question. Everything.
2: Yeah, I'd say we want to know because I the, the difficulty we found is maybe we're too micromanaging, but there's a tendency to want the show to have your voice in it. So, and that means have a, a, a massive amount of engagement. So we just find there aren't enough months to do more. Well, is your honor something different then in that respect? Like it? Yeah. So yeah, How does that work? Peter Moffat um, is this great writer uh, who did, who basically did the night of. He did the British version of it, and then he supervised the American version. And we'd been, and Liz Glotzer had been engaging with him and seeing if there was anything that he'd be interested in. We wanted to work together. And then Liz saw this uh, Israeli show, this format, which is Your Honor, and pitched it to him. And then we went out together. It's being shot in New Orleans right now. We go down there, but Liz is the active person on it. We do all the notes on the scripts. We do all the supervise. They're showing a uh, teaser for it t- uh, tomorrow, tomorrow. tomorrow. So we're supervising that. But uh, Ed Berger was the director of the first three episodes, this great director who did Patrick Melrose. Um, and they were a unit that it was like we were kind of benign parents just going, oh, my God, you're, you know... I'm going to let you we're going to let you play because it's great. We just wanted
1: to make sure we talked a little bit about the good fight in the upcoming season, which we've heard is less directly Trump centric. was that something you always have sort of imagined you would want to get to or is it simply a kind of self-care mental health issue on your part?
2: (laughs) I think the key is when we started uh, the writers room, the first weeks were when Nancy Pelosi said uh, impeachment. And so we didn't know – it wasn't that we thought Trump wouldn't be in the presidency. Of course he's going to survive this. That's who he is. He's one of those survivors. The question, which was how do you comment on the current day when the today keeps changing so quickly? So it is a – there's a serialized element of the course of the season which goes into the question of how this current administration is affecting our understanding of the law And who needs to obey the law and who does not? You know, I grew up or or came to adulthood thinking if you were subpoenaed to something, you had to go. So there's this comic. But it
0: appears that that's no longer the case. It's 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 optional. It didn't used to be optional. It's a casual invite.
2: (laughs) I grew up thinking if you were on the stand or if you were under oath, you had to tell the truth. You couldn't keep adding on and say, oh, yeah, I met with this Russian. I met with that Russian. I met. And so a lot of the show this season is so much of our understanding about the drama of courtroom dramas. Perry Mason all the way you know through the Broadway version of To Kill a Mockingbird is all about the idea that there are rules to court that we all understand. You say objection. The judge says overruled, sustained. There are those rules. What happens when those rules start coming unglued? And that is a, that is what we—probably the thing we're closest to is Catch-22 in that way. This a world that is absurdity because it has a rule at the center that is absurd and has a vicious circular logic to it. And that's what this—that I mean, sounds esoteric. Obviously, it's supposed to be funny, and the actors are all good, and there's <laughs> sex, there's violence. And so <laughs> on top, there is a sense of what has happened to our world when the rules don't seem to apply, not even— I mean obviously it's going to be very bad for people what does it do to drama if you don't have if you have a tennis game and you can drop the net and just kind of hit it back that's kind of seems to be what's going on
1: <laughs> well i mean the way i look at at these two shows is kind of the good fights theme is if you look out the window each morning and everything makes you angry, what do you do? And evil's theme is if you look out in the morning and everything makes you terrified, what do you do? (laughs) But if you watch them back and forth, you might sort of wonder how do you get out of bed in the morning at all? (laughs) I'm curious what, um, you know, what keeps you guys going and from all appearances in relatively good humor?
0: (laughs) Uh, It helps to be able to write about it. (laughs) <laughs> and and to be able, and now I'm being serious, to be able to go into a writer's room with seven other people who are obsessed on these issues, who are some of the smartest people I've met, and be able to talk about it. That's helpful.
2: And I think comedy. I mean, comedy is a very good, I mean, probably the one of the most accurate books, probably about World War II, and one of the funniest is Catch-22, because... Not the series, which I don't think got that humor. But the book is just very funny, but also very ac- accurate about the absurdity of life. So uh, absurdity is not a bad way to grab on to what's happening today. We're all kind of holding on to, you know, we're in the backseat of a drunk driver. I mean, he's not a drinker, but a father who is like a drunk driver who's and we're just kind of braced. And at a certain point, you have to look at the sights and just go, OK. I'm in for the fate I'm in for, at least there's an element of absurdity and the lights are pretty as they skid by, are rushing by. You guys don't have like a sort of heartwarming show about
1: a guy and his puppy (laughs) in your back pocket that you really, really want to make for, again, (laughs) self-care?
0: No, but we do have a puppy in an upcoming episode. It might be the cutest puppy you've ever seen.
1: See, that's a tease. I like (laughs) that.
3: And then we kill it.
1: (laughs) No, no, that
2: is a joke. That is a joke.
3: (laughs) Uh, you know, you know, touching on, on a good fight, you know,
2: um, how much
3: longer do you see the show going? Do you have a,
2: a larger plan? I got to think how November goes. Um, I do think this show is very specific to a period of time. You know, it is that thing about, you know, living interesting times. It was a show that started cynically, which is, okay, All Access needed a show because uh, probably I think Star Trek wasn't ready yet. And so they... They just needed a show and they thought uh, people like The Good Wife, can we spin it off? And, you know, it even started, you know, I think in kind of prosaic ways. And then when the current president won, there was like suddenly there was a meaning to what the show was about. And I think it would be if that meaning's still there, there might still be a reason for the show. Do you have
1: any notes from that version of the show that was going to be Diane in a world where there was a President Hillary that could be applicable if hypothetically it's a President Elizabeth Warren or a President Amy Klobuchar or not our current president? Well, I mean,
2: as you notice, I mean, the sad thing is with regards to racism, it's one of those perennials. Um, And the show is Christine Baranski in an an all-African-American firm. There is that. That is, I think, an interesting, as long as you keep peeling away different parts of what race is I mean it was last year, I think one of my favorite episodes was this Mothering While Black episode, which didn't just end there, but kind of had very progressive people looking at their intrinsic racism in the hiring and firing in the company and in the pay in the company. And then even, you know, the African-American CEOs, the partners, were looking at, that that infected their thinking about how they paid. So I think it's seen as long as you can, uh, we're doing an episode this year that, you know, was inspired by Slave Play, you know, that play on Broadway. Show on Broadway. Yeah. That And so as soon as you can find different elements of how that experience is played out and not in a pretentious, preachy way, I think there'll be reasons for the show to exist. What is your process? I'm just curious about that because we've had
1: we've had writing pairs on before, but we've never had a husband and wife writing pair. So, how do you all do it?
0: <laughs> a lot of things get divvied up. We're both in the writers' room much of the time. Robert gallops ahead and is more involved with the scripts. There are other producerial tasks that I will more
2: often deal with whether it's the legal department or whatever. We tend to build it together. I probably do the first draft. Michelle then gives notes and talks in terms of what's not working, what is working. When we come down to producing, everything kind of involving the look, except the camera department, Michelle's wardrobe, production design, yeah, uh, and casting. And I'm probably most involved with uh, directors, editing. And that's probably it. Yeah. So, uh, look, we keep saying we don't know how one person does it. I just don't... I don't Truly. I, it's, uh, it's kind of baffling, I don't... Because it is an all-encompassing job.
0: And in terms of process, we do not have a... And I know some people do have a wall between, okay, at home we only speak of family, and at work we only speak of work. It's much more porous for us. It's the, Nothing's off limits at any time.
1: How do the writers, the other writers in the room respond, I guess, when you come in the next morning and it's, we had this whole conversation last night at home and here's what we figured out, here's what we talked about, which I imagine does not happen on most
2: shows. (laughs) I really hope the writers don't think they're the people in the backseat and we're the drunk drivers because I would hate the that. I
0: I don't think it, it, you know what, it doesn't really work that way because yes, we can start a day with you know, we were talking last night and we were thinking da-da-da-da-da-da-da and then we'll all start fleshing it out together. But, you know, it occasionally happens that a writer will say, you know, I was thinking about what we were talking about last night and then it occurred to me that. So it's not that imposed.
2: There, it's not. It's a little more democratic than that because, you know, I'm getting ideas shot down all the time. It just is. And sometimes rightly because they're just stupid. But it also ideas are kind of always back there if they want to be dragged back up because you're exhausted and you need to keep the train moving forward you know for for showrunners
3: who cut your teeth in broadcast you know i i i wonder you know with a show like evil that could have easily been on a basic cable or a premium network or streaming obviously but when you think about creating a show for broadcast how do you know it's for what platform especially in this climate like do you like
2: oh i have an idea for a broadcast show or is that how you approach other ideas when you have them we have a we have a 3 year deal with CBS so we do know it's somewhere within the CBS garden we uh, did not want to do a network show as in 22 episodes. So we went to CBS and said, you know, we could think of ideas, but we really can't do that. If Would you be fine with it? And David Staff, who's our you know, real rabbi over at— He uh, runs the studio. He runs the studio. He's amazing to us, and he's one of those people who encourage us which direction to go. Uh, he thought it would work with networks. so we pitch to them first, and then they see. Yes, they, of-
0: they're more savvy about the marketplace than we are. We or we assume they're more savvy about the marketplace, and and we'll oftentimes we'll just come to them with an idea, and then say, where do you see it belonging? I mean, occasionally we'll, you know, if for example it were period, you know, chances
2: are they're not going to want to put that on broadcast, but you know, otherwise. And I think basically, with your honor, we had this. We asked them; they wanted to go wide to the town, which meant to go to all the streaming. And we did. It wasn't even go to. And network. we did. Yeah. And there was kind of uh, Showtime was the best offer. It wasn't like oh, we were pushed to go to Showtime. It was like show, they, there were a lot of places' of interest, but Showtime stepped up the most.
0: But, but are they no? For we about we half are not. Hour? We are not looking at at the lineup of CBS Viacom. <laughs> Opportunities and,
3: and targeting. Checking them off. Maybe the list. we should be, but we're not. <laughs> but do you have another broadcast show that you want to do?
2: There are three more shows we want to do of ones we've created, but I don't know if they're broadcasts. It seems like one might be Showtime and one might be All Access. Um, but for no good reason other than that Julie Mack over at All Access would probably like this, you know, and uh, Gary Levine over at Showtime might like this.
3: Um, and, and when you think about developing, you, you know, you said you like to do, you know, between 20 and 23 episodes per year. That would kind of presume that at some point you're going to start to mentor or if you or continue to mentor other up and coming writers who can execute your, your vision. How important is that to you guys right now?
2: Well, it, it, we've had a lot of people in our writers room who are running shows now, which is wonderful. And at a certain point we realized why are we losing these people? <laughs> they are creating these shows power. I mean, you know, it's almost like, well, if we put a dollar on that stock and, <laughs> and we could have. Um, so a lot of it is we're looking internally to writers in our writer's room and we're asking them to pitch us. We're getting, uh, there's something we're pitching tomorrow, in fact, that is from one of the writers in the Your Honor writer's room. Uh, the bottom line is it's, it's a really good place to start with a base where you have all these writers who are very smart, you can get a sense of their taste when you're listening to what they're pitching all day, and you're dealing how pleasant it is to work with them all day. Because I do think one of the keys for Michelle and myself, we do kind of want pleasant workplaces. It's been uh, I've worked otherwise in why bother? We were, I've worked in features so long, which always was unpleasant. It's great to have a place where people do like each other.
1: How much more satisfying is this phase of your career than the feature phase? Because you wrote, oh my write, God, oh my <laughs> it's, it was,
2: there's no, it, it doesn't even get close. Features were hard. Features were hard because people didn't trust you. you know, we would write, or I would write a mountain climbing movie that had a wages of fear moral aspect and was really about, um, not wages of fear, is of wages of morality, of, okay, is it right to leave this person behind if you can only carry two people, for example, and keep kept raising the wage of that. And then it, you know, it turns into an action movie. I mean, you do the bottom line is you're always trapped by, if you're doing a show that is trying to be smart or interesting, but also have a genre elements, movies always sopped it down to just a genre element. Um, So this is like a dream. This is, We're the happiest we've, I'm saying, speaking for myself, we're the happiest we've ever been.
0: It's so much better be working in a genre where, or in a medium rather, where the writers are taken seriously and get to make producorial
3: decisions. Yeah, you know, we do like to end um, all of our showrunner spotlight interviews with the same question. What are you guys watching on TV and and really enjoying?
2: Um, High Maintenance, I think is one of the best shows out there. Watchmen, obviously, everybody's saying Watchmen. But I... I, it I was going to me... say, to
0: add to what everybody's saying, Fleabag.
2: Yeah, three or four shows, episodes of it, I didn't quite get what the fuss was about. And then it just started kicking in. And I thought that That's was a really... On Watchmen. Sorry, not on Fleabag, on Watchmen. This is an embarrassing admit- admission, but The Circle, uh, which <laughs> is a Netflix reality show, which is A, the end of civilization as we know it, but B, hard to resist for whatever reason. I watch Survivor, sorry, but I do. And I'm not, I'm going to watch next time too.
0: Bob's Burger is a perennial in our house.
2: You know, we kind of watch everything, Shit's Creek, A Russian Doll, uh, another excellent one. I think we could probably be asked what we don't watch and (laughs) easier than what we do watch. The Circle very much feels like the kind of show, though, that
1: someone on the Good Fight would become obsessed with. So, I guess we should watch for season like (laughs) five and see how it comes into the play. Yes, so true. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great.
3: The first season of Evil wraps January thirtieth on CBS. The fourth season of The Good Fight premieres this spring on CBS All Access, and Your Honor is expected to premiere later this year on Showtime.
1: Number five. (laughs)
3: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. The January Insanity is continuing, Dan. I feel for you, my friend. Ugh. So a bunch of new releases this week. Sex Education returns for season two on Netflix. Apple Bow's anthology Little America. Disney Plus has Diary of a Future President. Rob Lowe goes to Texas on Fox's 911 offshoot Lone Star. Aquafina makes her Comedy Central scripted debut with Nora from Queens. And Patrick Stewart returns to Star Trek with CBL Access' Picard. Plus, the retooled third season of Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19 launches under new showrunner Krista Vernoff. Dan, what you got?
1: That's a lot. Um, First thing to note is that there are embargoes on several things that are premiering next week. So I can't tell you what I think about Picard because part of CBS All Access's thing is that they like fans to experience things at the same time as critics are reviewing them. And that's their choice. And so my review will be up on the 23rd. But Next week you should look for our interview with Michael Shabon. Uh you should also definitely check out last week's interview with Tim Maneer, where he talked about the 911. It's not really a spin-off because it isn't really spinning off from it, uh, but the franchising of 911 with Lone Star. And honestly, if you terrific interview. It, it's a great interview. And if you like the thing that 911 does, and it's a heightened broadcast procedural done reasonably well. And I would say that Lone Star is in the same vein. It has a lot of fun with uh with Roblo's Vanity, a lot of fun. Boy, it's a lot about Roblo being extremely vain. That's kind of the plot of the entire show. But it, you know, it does some fun things and it it's in the same qualitative vein as the original, so if you like one chances are good you'll like the other. But really there are things for kind of everyone this week. If you have a younger viewer in your life. Disney Plus's Diary of Future President is is charming and likable. Uh, I am very much not its target demographic, and yet I watched five episodes and and really enjoyed it frequently, and never found myself angry or resenting it, which. You know, that says a lot, or at least it says something. Uh, Our new colleague, Ingu Kang, loved Little America. I have not watched a second of it, but I do like to love things, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, I've watched a couple episodes of the new season of Sex Education. I like them very much.
3: I binged the whole thing over the holidays, Dan. I loved it. I love that show.
1: You get get to curate your experience a lot more than I do. I watch a lot of stuff, so... uh...
3: Yeah, I have a lot of opinions about how much stuff you watch, Dan.
1: Well... All has to be watched, or some of it has to be watched, or who knows. Anyway, Sex Education, it's a really good show, Um, and I loved the first season and liked the couple episodes I watched. And if you like Aquafina. And you've enjoyed her scene-stealing roles in movies like *Crazy Rich Asians*. Uh, I would not say that her work in *The Farewell* exactly prepares you for her Comedy Central show, but she's fantastic in that movie. Uh, Aquafina is Nora from *Queens* on Comedy Central premieres next week, and it's it's likable and funny, and it is occasionally very funny. And I see how given. Some time And it's already been renewed for a second season, as we already mentioned on this podcast, it could become a, a worthy successor to Broad City. Uh, it is it is funny. She is very good. The supporting cast is very strong, including uh, BD Wong, Saturday Night Live, Breakout, Bowen and Yang. It's it's a, it's a solid launch to a comedy, which is sometimes something to do. That's kind of a hard thing. And, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, you have to wait five or six episodes for it to get good. This is it's not great. In the five episodes I've seen, but it's good. And it it's funny. You'll laugh a few times. Um, I believe you've checked out st- uh, Station 19, which I certainly have not. How is its new season?
3: Um, I actually liked it. And I've only seen the one episode, the season three premiere. I will say, and keep in mind, I, I stress this in all the time, but I'm not a critic. I'm just a Grey's Anatomy nerd. But I checked out of this show very early in season one. It was not for me. And I say that, you know, Sad because I loved Private Practice and was in for every episode of that spinoff. But this new take under Christopher Vernoff, it, it's got the urgency of Grey's Anatomy. And maybe that's just because it, it resolves the big cliffhanger from the, the Grey's Anatomy midseason finale. But I really liked it. I, I, the characters feel engaging. You know, the two shows coexist quite well into this one-two punch. Obviously Station 19 at 8 and Grey's Anatomy now pushed back to its original time slot at 9. It works. I'm very much interested in watching more of Station 19 to see if it's something that I add to my DVR.
1: And that was Leslie's Critics Corner.
3: Yeah. And we'll have more with showrunner Christopher Vernoff about both shows on the site um, next week. One thing she didn't talk about, however, was Justin Chambers because, well, the interview was done before that happened. So
1: (laughs) one thing she didn't talk about was a thing that hadn't happened yet.
3: Yeah, well, that feels like a very good point to wrap things up. I'm tired, Dan. This is a lot. And we still have, let's see, it's Thursday now as we record this Friday day at TCA, Saturday TCA, and a half day Sunday with Apple here. So home stretch, my friend.
1: I see the light at the end of the tunnel.
3: Well, thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Star Trek Picard showrunner and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Michael Chabon.
1: Until then, subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It helps spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you, whether you have questions, comments, or concerns. If you have actual questions, though, and I mean, like, serious questions that you want us to answer, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at thr.com. We have not had any lack of news the past couple of weeks, yeah. but one of these days it'll it, be time for a mailbag segment. I, I think segment. we should
3: do a mailbag next week, well, news permitting. We'll see.
1: Yeah, we'll see. If you have questions about anything that happened in the past couple of weeks, this would be a great time to email us. Until next week, Leslie.
3: Until next week, Dan. Let's get some rest. <sighs>